Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 18 is what we're going to be reading from in God's Word today. Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 18. Let's listen to God's word. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this fresh sight of Jesus, your son. Father, I pray that you would help us see Jesus, that you would help us see what it is that we have to hope in, who it is that we have to hope in, that Jesus would be bigger in our eyes, no matter what we're going through, through temptations, trials, sufferings, difficulties, hardships. Father, I pray that you would bring your encouragement to your people this morning. Bless me as I speak this morning. Bless all those who hear for your glory. Lord, we need your grace, and we pray for your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 1982, there was a movie that came out, and it was called Little Orphan Annie, and one of the opening songs was It's a Hard Knock Life. Anybody remember that song? Okay, the lyrics kind of went like this, and I'm not going to sing it. My wife asked if I'd sing it this morning. I said, no, not a chance. I asked Dale to sing it, though, so Dale, you want to stand up and... No, okay, he's passing on that one, so... Uh, the lyrics go like this. It's the hard knock life for us. Instead of treated, we get tricked. Instead of kisses, we get kicked. It's the hard knock life. Got no folks to speak of, so it's the hard knock row we hoe. Cotton blankets instead of wool. Empty bellies instead of full. It's the hard knock life. Don't it feel like the wind is always howling? Don't it feel, seem like there's never any light? Once a day, don't you want to throw the towel in? It's easier than putting up a fight. No one's there when your dreams at night get creepy. No one cares if you grow or if you shrink. No one dries when your eyes get wet and weepy. From all the crying, you would think this place is a sink. Oh, empty belly life, rotten smelly life, Full of sorrow life, no tomorrow life. Kind of depressing. I was 10 years old at the time. I didn't understand that song. <laughs> but if we're honest, I think we'll admit it. And, and, you know, we were laughing at first. Little Orphan Annie, isn't that funny? But as you listen to the words, as you listen to the lyrics, you realize you can identify. If you've lived on this planet long enough as a human... At all times, at some time, at some point in time, once a day it may be, don't you want to throw the towel in? It feels like it would be easier than putting up a fight. For honest, we can all admit to the lyrics of the song, unless you're 10 and under, and then in a few years you'll, you'll relate. Most people don't want to admit it, right? 
We don't like talking about struggles. We don't like talking about trials. We don't like talking about hard and difficult times. The struggles, the weaknesses. We can pretend. We can act as if they don't exist. And as a Christian, though, really inside we're thinking, you know, I thought this would be easier as a Christian, but it hasn't gotten easier. It's only gotten more difficult. It's only gotten more complex. And we can be tempted to go back to where we felt like it was easier. It can feel like it's easier to throw the towel in at times, to just give up. The people that the book of Hebrews was written to, they were tempted in the same ways. They'd been Christians for a little while. They'd experienced the the amazement of the freedom that they have in Christ. And then what happened was challenges in life, struggles in life, temptations in life, persecution, people making fun of them, people telling them they were dumb, they were stupid. Who is this Jesus who died? Your Messiah was a loser. They were told all these things, and so they were tempted to give up, to give in, to say, okay, we're just going to turn back to avoid troubles, avoid struggles, avoid persecution. But you see, the author of Hebrews, and really the Holy Spirit, he wanted them to see, and he wants us to see that they shouldn't give up, and we shouldn't give up either. In the Christian life, Jesus said, in this world you will have troubles. Isn't that a great promise? But he says... That he is with us. Who is this Jesus who's with us then? The author of Hebrews is going to help us see who this Jesus is who says he will be with us and never leave us and never forsake us. Why does that make a difference? The message we have, it's worth living for. Jesus is worth living for. And the fact The main idea, really, of this passage, the main idea of this text is just that Jesus, he was like us in every way. Jesus was like us in every way, mercifully taking our place. Mercifully taking our place and conquering for us in every way. Jesus was like us in every way, mercifully taking our place and conquering for us in every way. And if we see what we have, here's, here's the goal of this passage. Here's the goal of really Hebrews. If we see what we have, if we see who we have, Jesus, it'll give us hope in his promises. That's really our theme throughout the entire book. And the reason why we wanted to do the book of Hebrews, the reason why I'm excited about the book of Hebrews is we're going to have an extended period of time that we're going to spend looking at Jesus over the next like 30 weeks. We're going to get to see more and more of Jesus. Really, our, our mission as this church, it's simple. It's to find our identity in him. It's to be disciples of Jesus. And if, and if we know who we are in Christ, then all of our life really flows from that. If we know who we are in Christ, the rest of our mission, see, be disciples in Christ, that's our first part of our mission, grow as disciples and make disciples. But if we don't get the first part right, none of it matters. But see, the book of Hebrews is written to help us as Christians know where our identity is so that we can grow and we can make disciples. First thing we're going to see in this text, there's five points the author is going to draw our attention to to encourage us. Because we need encouragement. It's a hard knock life, right? We need encouragement. He's going to give us hope. He's going to help us see who we have in Jesus. And there's five ways he's going to help us see who we have in Jesus. And the first thing we're going to draw our attention to is that Jesus was made complete through suffering. That's our first point this morning. Jesus was made complete through suffering. That doesn't seem right, does it? You see, in our day, there's many who claim to be Christians who... Don't believe that it was fitting for God to cause his son to suffer. They read through the accounts. They read through a scripture like this. And men like Steve Chalk and Brian McLaren, they've, they've, they've denied that it was right and fitting for God to make Jesus complete through suffering. They've claimed somehow that there was some form of divine child abuse of God punishing his son. But scripture says that's not true. Sister says, no, Jesus had to be made complete through suffering. It was fitting. It was fitting that he was made complete through suffering. Not only did Jesus have to pay for the sins of mankind and take God's holy wrath against unrighteousness, it says it was fitting for God to make Jesus complete through suffering so that he might identify with mankind in every way. 
you know, I, there was an old show in the 80s and I guess the 90s too. It was called Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing there's probably some Trekkies out here or closet Trekkies, people who don't want to admit it. That's okay. I'm one of the ones who I watched it, but I won't ever admit it to you. Although I guess I just did. But uh, there was this character in that, and it, uh, his name was Data, and he was made as, as human-like as possible. And he was this android made very human-like. And, but the problem was, Data could experience the whole range of humanity, except he had no emotion. And so his conflict was, he was trying to become human, but he could not be. He could not be complete, because he, he couldn't experience the range of emotions that humans experienced. And, and then finally, in one episode, he... He experiences the full range of human emotions and he feels like he's finally complete because he can identify with humanity. So he can, he can really know what it means to be human. He was never, never complete until he experienced that. Well, <laughs> Jesus was no android. He, he actually took on human flesh and blood. He became fully man. He became fully man to completely identify with us in every way. Yes, he was the creator. Yes, he knows us intricately and intimately. He created every fiber, every cell in our being. He knows us. He created us. He breathed his life into us. But at the same time, because of Adam's sin and the suffering that we experience as a result in this world, and and you have to admit we experience a lot of suffering in the world, not only our own sin but the sins of others and, and the effects of the fall. So in order to completely identify with us in every way, it says it was fitting that Jesus was made complete. Now, it wasn't saying that Jesus wasn't perfect or complete before. In, in, in his Godhead, Jesus was infinite and complete, perfect in every way. But he had to be made complete as a man. He had to experience the full range of humanity. And in order really to be made complete as a man, to, to fully take our place as a man... He had to endure every range of suffering. He had to understand what it means to be human so it was fitting and good. He was made complete through suffering. You see, but the people in in, in the book of Hebrews, they probably didn't understand that. They were maybe a little confused. Maybe they were tempted like Peter was to forbid it that the Messiah should die or ever have to die. Remember that? He said, forbid it that you would ever undergo that. Jesus was telling him he had to die and be raised again in three days. But Jesus rebukes Peter and he tells him he was not setting his mind on God's interests. The author of Hebrews begins by explaining that Jesus' suffering, it's not a mistake and it's not without purpose. He explains all things. Why he opens it, he says, all things exist for God and all things exist through God. See, he's all powerful and, and all things exist for him. Whatever God does is indeed fitting. So why is it fitting for God to make Jesus to suffer? simple answer is humans suffer. Humans suffer. So the suffering of Jesus, it's not accidental is what he's trying to tell us. It's not accidental. It's not a bad thing. It doesn't represent a failure on God's part. No, this is all part of the, the achievement of the all-powerful God who is perfectly fulfilling his plan. And it tells us what his plan is. Look down your Bible for a second. It tells us what his plan is. It says, to bring many sons and daughters to glory. To bring many sons and daughters to glory through the suffering of Jesus. God made Jesus, it says, our founder, our, our author, our pioneer of our salvation, perfect or complete through suffering. He, get this, Jesus had to learn how to obey through the struggles of humanity. We don't think about that very much, do we? We just think of Jesus already coming up and he's in his ministry and he's already perfect. Well, you know, he, he learned obedience, it says. He was completed in, in the things that he learned. And he learned things. He learned things like patience. He learned things like patience and faith as a human. He learned to perfectly, completely, and fully identify with our experiences as a human. And, and why did God do this? Why? It says because he purposed to bring many sons to glory. You know, God, remember the story of the Exodus? God, he leads his people out of Egypt into the promised land. And now... We see that this is kind of a, a picture of that in Hebrews. God leading his people out of Egypt into the promised land, but it really wasn't the ultimate promised land. It didn't fulfill. It didn't solve their problems. But now, through Jesus, God is leading his people into the final promised land, the ultimate and true promised land, the place of rest. 
And see, God is, is leading his sons and his daughters into a new relationship with him, the fulfillment of the promised land. He brings us into the same glory. Remember back in Hebrews 2.7, look down for a moment in your Bibles. It, it talks about the glory of man. And it's that glory that we've fallen from because of sin and rebellion from God, because of suffering of Jesus, though. Here's the cool thing. We're now destined to recapture that glory through Jesus. One day we're going to be free. Listen to this. One day we're going to be freed from cancer, from backaches, from lupus, from muscle diseases, from neurological disorders, from MS, from PMS, from <laughs> raging hormones, from fibromyalgia, from arthritis, from depression, from corruption, from disease of all kinds. And we're going to inherit is what it's saying. He's destined us to bring many sons to glory, the same glory that the risen sun has. That's astounding. We're going to be brought into the glory of the sun, the divine power and presence of God. God could have saved us any way he pleased, right? He's God. All things exist for him and through him. He could have done any way he pleased. Anything God does, in fact, is right and good. We know that. So in one sense, any way he would have chosen to save us would have been fitting because he knows best and he's perfectly and completely loving even if we don't understand. But in this case, the author of Hebrews is explaining it was fitting for him to be made complete through suffering. It was fitting because he had to overcome. He had to overcome, and he has overcome where we all have failed. That's why it's fitting. He's always obeyed, even when he was tested in the most terrible ways. You can't imagine what it means to be divine and then become man, your creation. The temptation would have been extreme to say, no thanks. To say, I think I'll pass. To, there must be a simpler, easier way. You know, we think, could Jesus really relate to us on our temptations? No, his temptations were far more extreme than yours. You're not, you weren't God. You couldn't mandate when you were first born, everyone worshiped me. And then yet, every time somebody didn't worship you, they were offending creation. He was tempted in extreme ways, in every way like us, and in far more ways. But it was fitting because he experienced the exact same kinds of suffering that we do. It was fitting so he could identify with us personally. Maybe you're thinking, Jesus is this uncaring, remote person. This passage is for you. Maybe you're suffering. Maybe you're struggling, going through challenges, trials, hardships. If you're human, if you're breathing, this passage applies to you. He can relate to you personally in every way. They say that misery loves company. I think it's because no one wants to feel like they're alone. No one wants to feel hopeless, really. We all want to know that there's hope in our darkest hour. We want to know that somebody else has made it through. If you've ever met somebody else who's identified with you in your challenges and your personal sufferings and overcome it, it's encouraging for you, isn't it? It's like, you're messed up? Oh, I'm messed up too. That's really cool. <laughs> the cool part is not that they're messed up. It's just knowing that you're not alone. Somebody else has suffered like you. They can relate to you. That you're not unusual in the bad way. That somebody else knows what it's like. And then if that person can share with you along the way how that person has endured the suffering, how God's helped them, it's even more encouraging, isn't it? You ever experienced that? What we find here is that even if no one else, here's the hope for you. You might be sitting here in this room and thinking, no one else can identify with me. Nobody else can relate to me. Nobody else understands me. Nobody else gets it. Nobody else gets me. The funny thing is, actually, most people in the room think that. But yet you think that everybody, nobody else thinks that. Here's the good news. Jesus identifies with you. He's been through it. He sympathizes with us. He understands, even if nobody else does. Not only that, here's the other thing we're going to see in our text. The second point we see in our text this morning is that, is that Jesus is unashamed of us. He's unashamed to be called our brother. He's unashamed to be our brother. Think about what losers we are. <laughs> right? We fail. We're fickle. We're weak. He didn't fail in any way. We fail in every way. If you're honest with yourself, 
And yet he says, you know what? I'm not embarrassed. I'm not embarrassed of you. If you placed your faith and your trust in Jesus as your Savior, he is saying to you, I'm not embarrassed of you. You may feel ashamed. You may feel like everybody else is ashamed of you. You may feel like you should be ashamed. And Jesus is saying, I'm not ashamed of you. And not only not ashamed of you, I'm not ashamed to call you my, my brother and sister. I'm not ashamed. He's unashamed to be our brother. He himself suffered and he sanctifies us through suffering and he calls us brothers. It's really blows, it should blow your mind that Jesus says, you're my brother, you're my sister. He's not ashamed of you. He knows you though, but he's not ashamed of you. It's like the little kid getting picked on by older bullies. We, there's so many movies about that on the playground. And then this older, bigger brother, he's, he's friends of the bullies. He finally musters up courage. He steps in and he tells his little, you know, that's my little brother, so knock it off. It's not like that with us, though. He's, he's completely unashamed. He's been through it. He's there for us. Moses said before in, in the Old Testament, he was not ashamed to call himself an Israelite. See, he was raised in the palace in, in Egypt, and um, he was raised as really one of the, the sons of Pharaoh. He was treated royally. He got the best food, the best treatment, the best of everything, and Egypt was the most powerful nation in the world at the time. It said Moses was not ashamed to call himself an Israelite and so face suffering as he led his people out of Egypt. Moses was really a forerunner, a prophetic picture of Jesus who ultimately is not ashamed to call all those who trust in him as brothers. And, and he leads us ultimately out of bondage, out of slavery. That's what this passage is telling us. Into the true promised land of everlasting peace with God. He's the best big brother. He's gone before us. He's paved the way. He showed us how to honor God and then he helps us. And it says he'll never be ashamed of us. He's, he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. The people whom Hebrews were written to, they experienced a contempt of the society all around them. And, and much like ourselves, they were tempted to giving in to being ashamed of Jesus. Are you ever tempted? Just a little. Maybe not share the gospel. Maybe not let on that we're Christians. Maybe not share our faith because they're going to think we're weird. He's not ashamed of you. Not only that, as a brother, he leads the way. He tells us of God. He instructs us as a, as a caring older brother would, and he leads us into singing God's praises. Look in the first power of this passage. It says, I will tell of your name to my brothers, in verse 12. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. What does that mean? It means he's our older brother, and he's, he's telling us about God, and he's helping us learn to praise God. He's helping us along the way to know who God is, and and know how to praise God, how to live for him. My, my oldest son, Noah, he loves his younger siblings. And, and I don't know why, but from the very, very beginning, he really has. And we have this wonderful picture when he was, he was two and Abby was being born. He's leaning over kissing her in the, in the hospital. And it's the cutest thing. I wish I actually should have put the picture up. I don't have it, so maybe next week. Um, <laughs> he's, he's always seemed to enjoy helping them and helping them learn how to do things and and he likes teaching them. And over the years, there's been many times where I've kind of walked by the family room and I've caught him sitting on the couch with one of the kids. And, and he's reading the Bible to his younger sisters and brothers. And it, it's floored me. He's helping to explain it to them. Helping them understand who, who God is. And it's been really precious to see how he cares for them as an older brother. It's really the picture that we, we have of Jesus as an older, wiser brother. He understands. He's been through it all. He knows, and he knows of God, and he tells us of who God is, and he tells us of God's name, and he helps us sing the praises of God because he's the perfect revelation of God himself in the flesh. There's a quote here then in verses 12. <laughs> 13, and it's really quoting Psalm 22. It's a psalm of David, but it's, it's been taken to be the psalm of the suffering servant by the early church because the opening lines of Psalm 22 are, My God, my God, 
Why hast thou forsaken me? And then, later on in Psalm 22, in verses 7 and 8, the psalm reflects the mocking of the religious leaders of Jesus as he hung on the cross. And they said, Lord, let him rescue him. Let him rescue himself. And then verses 16 to 18, they explicitly mention the piercing in Psalm 22 of the righteous one's hands and his feet. And then in Psalm 22, it talks about how his his bones were whole and not broken. His garments were divided up and lots were cast for them. So it's, it's no surprise then that we find this quote here attributed to Jesus, really. And Hebrews takes up the words that David spoke and applies them to Jesus, and he's saying that he calls us brothers. And it doesn't mean that we're gods or any such nonsense like that. But it means we're brothers and sisters in the sense of sharing Jesus' humanity and sharing the Father. One origin, it says. And he was made perfect through suffering, just as we are sanctified through suffering at times. When Jesus was on earth, he called his disciples, his brothers and sisters, and his family. You remember that? Jesus calls us brothers now. Jesus boldly proclaims God's name to us, and who we are in need of being strengthened, he enables us to sing God's praises. And through his example, he puts his trust in God. Jesus puts his trust in God, and then he helps us as his children do the same through his example of suffering. Jesus trusted in God, and he was vindicated. And here's our hope. Because of that, we can know that we too as his children can trust in him. We can be assured that we will be vindicated by God. I love the biblical account of of young David. You like the story of David? I love the story of David in the Bible. And he's bringing supplies to his brothers on the front lines. The whole armies of the Israelites, the Philistines, they're, they're, they're lined up on the opposite hills. They're arrayed in battle, but because of, of one man. You know the story? One giant man. He was spewing threats at the army of Israel. They were paralyzed in fear, right? They were trembling. They didn't know what to do. They feared for the lies because of this, this powerful foe that no one dared to challenge him. How could anyone confront this giant? He's far too big, far too strong. His shield was too heavy for them to lift. His spear too heavy to throw. They barely came up to his waist, it seemed. <laughs> day after day, you have this picture. Goliath, he's, he's hurling insults at them, and he's mocking them, calling them dogs, and he's calling them all kinds of names. And, and he's insulting, though, their God. And yet no one stands up for God. No one stands up for the people. Nobody stands up. Nobody's, nobody's standing up to this immense giant of a man. And then David comes and he's, he's scandalized. He's like, what? You're, you're letting him get away with that? And then David, this puny little guy, this little sheep herder who has no armor, who can't even fit into Saul's armor, it's way too big for him, it falls off him. If I wear this, I'm, gonna like, I'm not going to be able to walk. He, he goes up to this giant and God causes the stone that he throws to strike Goliath between the eyes and it kills him. Goliath falls and somehow this scrawny little red-headed you know, stepchild of a kid kind of thing, he, he takes this sword and he cuts his head off. And as, as soon as that happens, what, what happens to the army of Israel? They're emboldened. They see they're hero, they're emboldened, they're empowered to fight. They go and they fight the Philistines and they follow David's heroic example. You know, the story of David and Goliath, it's, it's not just meant to tell us about David and how God, uh, God's anointed one came to be. About, you know, a story about us needing to be brave and go out and conquer our enemies. That's not it. Although it's a real account, God designed it really to ultimately be a prophetic picture a prophetic picture of how we need someone to conquer for us because we have a giant that we could never conquer who's far too large, who's spewing threats at us, who makes us quake. He instills fear in all of mankind. It's an account that points to God's ultimate anointed one, the final anointed one, Jesus He's finally and ultimately conquered our biggest enemy. 
And how we have to trust in Jesus to defeat the devil and the power of sin and death that he wields over us. And that's just, it's really what this passage is telling us. It's, it's showing us that Jesus is our conqueror. And that's the third point that we're going to draw attention to this morning. It's, he's the one that partook of the same things that we have through his death. He's conquered. He's conquered our biggest foe of death and the fear that we have of death. And he's, he's conquered our biggest foe of death because he's conquered sin. And he's taken God's wrath for sin. And he's completely destroyed the power of the devil by taking away the power of death and the, the fear of death that the devil holds over each and every one of us. You see, death entered the world because of sin. And, and it's only because of sin that we all die. All who are sinful, the Bible tells us, deserve the punishment of death. And, and just like we are flesh and blood and we die... This is saying that Jesus took on flesh and blood and died, even though he never sinned. Jesus did this to pray the price for all of our sins. It says to break the power of the devil over us. Now, now here's the good news for us. Because the penalty of death has been paid, we no longer need to fear death, even though we do die physically. The devil can't wield power over us any longer. We don't have to obey him. Here's, here's the liberty. Here's the freedom that Jesus brings to us. He's our conqueror. He's freed us from lifelong slavery, enslavement to fear of death because of our sin. We don't have to obey the devil anymore to listen to his lies as he spews them out and shouts them at us, as he goes about as a roaring lion. Instead, we can, we can stand firm in our faith through Jesus, resist the devil, we'll flee, he'll flee from us. We've been delivered. And what this is saying to us is, author of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit wants us to see who it is that we have. We have Jesus who suffered in our place. We have Jesus who is our unashamed brother. We have Jesus who's our conqueror. My father-in-law, he doesn't like to go to the funerals of his friends anymore. He used to be pallbearers for people when he was younger and he doesn't want to go to funerals anymore because he doesn't want to think about dying. We like to pretend to not be afraid of dying. People like to pretend to not be afraid of dying. They mask it with all kinds of fears and sins. And Mankind tries to escape this, this fear of death that hangs over our heads like, a, like an executioner's blade ready to fall by turning to things to distract. Drunkenness and sex and pleasures and all masking this impending fear of death because we know we're guilty of sin and we know we deserve punishment. People try to get away with it, to get away from it, by claiming to be agnostic, to claim to not believe in God. Trying to find some other meaning, trying to avoid reality and what we all know is true. The text is telling us the resurrection of Jesus is the proof that his death has taken care of the full penalty for the sins that we were supposed to die for and be punished eternally for. He takes away the power of death, it says, by, by making propitiation. It's a big word. It just means to take away the rightly deserved wrath of God, the, the wrath that we deserve. Jesus turned God's wrath away from us and, and made God favorable towards us. The only power the devil has over us is when we're not forgiven. It's to accuse us of sin and to keep us sinning, to keep us away from the one who forgives our sins. But in taking our sins away, we can, we can no longer be accused of sin, no longer guilty of sin, no longer punishable for our sins. The devil can't make us sin. That's good news. If you see who you have, you can have hope to endure through this life of suffering this hard knock life. Jesus has taken away the power of the devil to hold fear of death over us. There's a man named S.W. Gandhi. He wrote a little poem that goes like this. Talking of Jesus. He hell in hell laid low. Made sin he sin o'erthrew. Bowed to the grave destroyed it so. In death by dying, slew. In death, by dying, slew. We see the death of death in the death of Christ. 
Not only was it fitting for Jesus to suffer, not only is Jesus unashamed to be called our brother, not only is Jesus our conqueror, here's the other thing. The good news is that Jesus is also our merciful high priest. It's the fourth point this morning. You see, we needed somebody. We need somebody to intercede between us and God for our sins and the sins of all mankind. But we also need somebody who can understand us, our weakness and our plight. We need somebody who is merciful for us and to us. My wife has delivered five children now, and I've had the privilege of getting to be there by her side and, and watch all the children be delivered. Um, I've had the privilege of, of watching what she goes through. I've seen her body morph uncomfortably through the whole pregnancy. I, I, I've been able to empathize with her and, and, and the back pain that she has and feel bad when it's almost time and when she's hot and she's uncomfortable and she's, she's waddling around and she has a, a hard time getting up out of a deep couch. I've seen the pain on her face through contractions and transition when she's, the baby's just about to come out. But I can only sympathize and empathize with her so much, really. Although I really try. But I'm I'm a man. We have certain parts. Women have certain parts. I can only empathize so much. I can't actually <clears throat> carry a child. I've never experienced it myself. But if I could become pregnant somehow, that'd be a funny picture. If I could carry a baby before she ever had, and if I could experience the whole deal fully, complete with the swelling of the bones of the feet getting big and all that kind of stuff... And if you haven't had a baby yet, ladies, I'm sorry. I just, just painted a picture for you. It's a glorious thing afterwards. It really is. It's, it's miraculous. It's beautiful. And here's the good news. You'll forget it. Um, every time my wife has forgotten it, every time, which is good. So you can just delete this part of the message. Forget that. But I'm sure if I could fully experience being pregnant before her, and I could walk her through it in a different light, right? Um, I'd have a whole different level of identification and sympathy. I'd be able to help her more. Jesus doesn't watch us with sympathy from afar. He doesn't even watch us like a, like a loving husband standing beside us who doesn't really fully get it. It says, in every way. Look in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Don't gloss over that. In every way. He experienced in every way he was made like us as a human. He can identify with our struggles and sin. And if that's the case, he will surely take hold of us as his children to get us out as well. And Jesus, just think about it for a moment. I want to meditate on this for a second. Jesus was tempted in every way, right? Let's think about what that means. He experienced physical and emotional pain. He experienced disappointment. He experienced harassment. He experienced rejection, loss of loved ones. He experienced all the effects of living in a fallen, sinful world. Let's think about it. When he was a kid, he was probably mocked and made fun of. He may have even been picked on. He probably dealt with acne in a crackling voice. Sounds weird to think of Jesus. We're not being irreverent. He was tempted to do things, I'm sure. He was tempted to to do things to fit in, but he resisted. We know that later he was indeed mocked by those in his hometown when he went back. He'd already performed tons of miracles, raised people from the dead. He goes back to his hometown and they say, who is this? Isn't he the illegitimate son? Isn't he just like Joseph and, and Mary's son, the carpenter's son? And, and the reality is his father probably died before his earthly ministry even began. We don't really hear about Joseph after the temple scene when Jesus is probably about 12, we don't really hear about Joseph again. He, he probably died, most likely. Most biblical scholars think that because otherwise we probably would have mentioned him. It just mentions Mary. And so there's a possibility he may have had the pressures of providing for his mother and his siblings as the head of his family. And then we do see later his family thought he was crazy. They, thought, they said they thought he was out of his mind. And so they went to get him. Your family might think you're crazy. You may be. 
During his ministry, he didn't have a home. The Son of Man doesn't have any place to lay his head. Think about it. He was homeless. He experienced weakness and exhaustion. Just pure fatigue from work. Giving himself when no one was really caring for him anywhere near how he poured himself out for others. You ever feel like you pour yourself out for everybody but nobody cares for you? Think how Jesus felt. He was completely misunderstood by almost everyone. He endured continual verbal abuse and unkindness, mocking and ridicule by the very people who knew the Bible and should have accepted him the most. He was rejected by the establishment of the day. The religious leaders, they harassed him. They rejected him. They tried to plot to kill him. He was tempted to lust, but he didn't. He was tempted to unrighteous anger and impatience, but he never was. He was tempted to lose faith when people didn't respond to his message, which was true, but they didn't listen, but he was patient. He experienced hunger and thirst. He experienced betrayal by his closest friends. All of his friends left him in his darkest hour. No one stood by him. Then he was wrongly accused. He was tortured. He was worn out. His feet hurt. <laughs> he ached. He probably had a sore back from sleeping on the ground so much. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was whipped within an inch of his life. He knew excruciating pain to the point that his appearance, it says, was disfigured. He was unrecognizable. He was so tortured. He was tempted in the garden to give up on his duty and his mission to save humanity. And he says, Father, if there could be any other way, let this cup pass. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And then worst of all, not only was he nailed to the cross, crown of thorns shoved into his head. Worst of all for him, you see, he who'd enjoyed Complete communion and unity with God in eternity. The Father turns his face away. After everyone else had rejected and abandoned him, at least God was there. But then God turns his face away. Jesus was made like us in every respect, but endured suffering that we will never have to. Because Jesus did that God will never turn his face away from us. You see, you may feel alone. You may feel like nobody else is. And maybe all your friends have deserted you. But because, because Jesus endured this, God will never turn his face away from you. And Jesus says he's unashamed to be your brother. And he's given us his Holy Spirit. Through his suffering, he identified with us in every aspect of our humanity. And as a man, he says he's became a merciful and faithful high priest. So I've got a bunch of questions I want to ask you. Maybe you're not identifying yet with this passage. Let me help you with that. Have you been rejected in any way? Have you been mistreated? Have people ever mocked you and made fun of you? Have, have people don't, don't, maybe people don't take you seriously or recognize your worth, your contribution. Have you been harassed? Are you being harassed? Do loved ones and family think you're crazy and treat you that way? Do people demean you? Do they belittle you? Are you weak? Are you worn out? Maybe moms, maybe you're just tired and exhausted from all the work. Maybe you're worn out from caring and doing what you're supposed to, giving and giving and feeling like you can't give anymore. Jesus can identify with you in every way. Maybe you're tempted to just want people to go away. Or go away from people, not talk to anybody anymore, not hear anybody else's needs, not make any more effort. Maybe you're homeless. You don't know where your next paycheck is coming from. Maybe you're in physical pain and feel like you want to die at times or do something to escape and relieve the pain or cut or take pills. Maybe you're tempted to get angry with God if he, as if he owes you health. Maybe you're tempted to self-pity, despair, unbelieving in God's goodness. Jesus comes to help us resist these temptations. He proclaims you're free from death. You're free from slavery. He knows just what agony you are experiencing. He's able and he will give you just what you need to be able to endure faithful to the end. 
Not only that, Jesus saw thousands of people who were suffering. He experienced loss personally, but he saw loss all over. He had emotions. He experienced the full range of human feelings. He knew the plight of the blind and the lame, the weak, the crippled, the leprous, the disfigured. He personally suffered relationally, mentally, emotionally, physically. Don't think for a moment that Jesus is unfeeling. Don't think that he doesn't care. You, you insult who he is. Don't think that he doesn't identify with you in your suffering. Don't think he's merciless or that he delights in your suffering somehow. Don't imagine that Jesus enjoys your sorrow or that he's ambivalent to it. He's not. He's a merciful and faithful high priest who can identify with you in every way and, it, and he helps us. He was made like us in every way, in every respect. He experienced suffering he didn't deserve. You see, we deserve suffering he never did. And he, he took on suffering by choice. He knows what suffering unjustly means. And he's merciful. Never in the Old Testament were the high priests described as merciful. Never. But you know who described himself as merciful? See, Moses begged God. He says, God, show me who you are. I want to know you. I want to see you. And so God says, okay, I'm going to put you in a cleft of rock. I'll protect you. And as I go by, I'll tell you who I am. And, and he proclaims his name. And this is the name that Jesus proclaims to us. The Lord, the Lord. He proclaims his name to us. He says, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And Jesus is our merciful high priest. The New Testament, the blind, the lame, they often called on Jesus. Remember blind Bartimaeus, the story? Son of David, have mercy on us. You see, Jesus has had mercy on us. Perfectly sympathetic to the needs of us as his people. Because of his own trials and sufferings, he can easily sympathize with ours. Not only with that, it tells us he was completely faithful to endure all the suffering for the same humanity at whose hands he was made to suffer. Think of that irony. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He was faithful in the face of all temptation. He was faithful to submit himself willingly to temptation. He's, he's never failed. He's a faithful high priest. He's entered in God's presence. And now he makes a way for us to come into God's holy presence. He sanctifies us. It says, he who sanctifies, and, the, and, and those who are sanctified all have one origin. He makes a way for us in God's presence. And lastly, finally, in the last few minutes, we want to see the fifth point, that Jesus is our ultimate help. Jesus is our ultimate help. You see, Jesus didn't, die for the angels, it says, but he did come to save any man or woman who will believe his promises and have faith in him the same way that Abraham did, and so become like the offspring of Abraham, is what it's saying in this passage. I love the word that's translated that, where it says he helps, because the, the actual word means he takes hold of. He takes hold of. How does it mean he helps? He takes hold of. Jesus takes hold of us and he carries us to deliverance. He takes hold of us in our weakness. He takes hold of us in our suffering. I remember a few years back when Joshua was two, my, my fourth born, and we were at a, a lake house of, of a family member and um, we just finished eating lunch and he had taken off his life jacket and I was in the water about 75 yards away and, and, um, and for some reason he takes off running and he runs over the deepest part of where the dock met the lake, and he runs and he jumps into the lake. And he sank, sank immediately. Talk about a terrifying moment. And I'm, I'm, I'm from here to the back of the room. I, I, I can't get to him quick enough. Julie sees, she's not the best swimmer. She, she runs, she jumps off the dock, dives in the deep water. She holds him up above her head, and, and she's underwater. He's not quite... He's not quite above water. He's still struggling. He's not breathing air, and Julie's holding her breath, and it's about to run out. I, I swam. I never swam so fast. 
somehow I reached down. I, I took hold of Julie, um, dove down with one hand. I pulled her up. I took Joshua, and I shoved him up to the dock and threw him up there. By God's grace, I took hold of them. Julie was choking. <laughs> took hold of them. I, I helped them, and Julie was too weak and about to drown and threw Joshua up there. Somehow, I took hold of them, and I helped them. And it's really the same image that we have of Jesus when it says, He helps us. He takes hold of us. He's just like us. He's been in the same waters that we have. And he knows how to get out unharmed. And he takes hold of us. And he helps us when we're tempted and we're weak, we're suffering. And when we're in danger of drowning, when life feels like too much and we can't get a breath because Jesus has suffered when tempted and yet endured that suffering. He knows how to resist temptation because he's gone before us. He's able to help us when we're being tempted. He understands us. He knows us. And he takes hold of us. Louis Bailey, I want to share a quote from you. He's one of John Bunyan's favorite writers. He wrote an imaginary dialogue between a redeemed soul and Jesus Christ. Lord, why did you let yourself be taken when you might have escaped your enemies? Christ that your spiritual enemies should not take you and cast you into a prison of utter darkness. So, Lord, why did you let yourself be bound? Christ, that I might lose the cords of your iniquities. So, Lord, why did you let yourself be lifted upon a cross? Christ, that I might lift you up with me to heaven. So, Lord, why were your hands and feet nailed to the cross, Christ, to enlarge your hands through the works of righteousness and to set your feet at liberty to walk in the ways of peace? Soul said, Lord, why did you have your arms nailed wide? Christ said that I might embrace you more lovingly. So, Lord, why was your side open with the spear, Christ, that you might have a way to come near to my heart? Go ahead and ask the band to go ahead and come forward for a moment. God is not some unsensing, unfeeling, cold-hearted taskmaster that makes demands of us. You see, when we're tempted to give up, like the people here in, in the book of Hebrews were, because it's a hard-knock life, right? Sometimes you want to throw the towel in once a day. Now, Jesus understands us fully and completely. And he springs into action to take hold of us. To take hold of us and to save us when we actually were dead at the bottom of the lake already. And then he takes hold of us as we go through life to help us when we're being tempted. It's a hard knock life indeed. But if we see what we have, we see who we have. We have hope. You see, what's the main idea? Jesus was like us in every way, mercifully taking our place and conquering for us in every way. Let's stand and rejoice in him. Amen.